chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, and while you are turning to Mark chapter 3, I'll read a different passage or two. Uh, First of those being Isaiah 42, so feel free to listen as you're turning to Mark 3. Isaiah 42 reads, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. A wonderful prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also listen to very briefly, uh, Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, and I start at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which it was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, having the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now turning to, uh, I am turning, I trust that you're already there, Mark chapter 3, having read a couple of passages uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture, that the light and the brilliance of what we're about to read might be more full and more understanding, understandable. We read now the Word of God, Mark 3, starting at 7. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a, small, uh, that a b- small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. This is the word of our God. At this time, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for all the words that you have allowed us to read today. And if we were to spend all of the day meditating upon your word and listening to it and reading it, Even this would not be enough, 
for we are hungry and we are thirsty for the things of God and for the things of the Lord Jesus. Help us to be content in what we have, and we ask your blessing not only on the reading, but also on the explanation, the uh, exposition, and also the application of this to our lives. We pray that we would be mindful of our heavenly session, that we, by astonishing grace, are seated with Christ in heavenly places. In his name we do pray. Amen. It is right for us to compare Scripture with Scripture because Scripture is its own infallible interpreter. <coughs> so as we consider Mark chapter 3, I asked you to consider Isaiah chapter 42, and also Philippians chapter 2. There are some very helpful preachers and teachers, John Calvin among them, who in his commentary, rather than writing a separate commentary on Matthew and a separate one on Mark and a separate one on Luke, he seeks to bring these together and whenever the events of one are mentioned, he brings together the others for comparison's sake. Well, the Gospel of Mark does not mention this passage as a fulfillment of Isaiah 42. However, Matthew does so. Matthew does so. There is this prophecy, Isaiah 42, written six or so centuries before the time in which the Lord Jesus would walk the earth. And what does this prophecy tell us? It says that the Father would be happy and rejoice in His elect one, the Lord Jesus and that the Lord Jesus would have his spirit, the Father's spirit, and the Son's spirit resting upon him. And we are told that as a result of this elect one and the Spirit being upon him, that grace and truth would be upon him, and that justice would go to the Gentiles. Justice would go to the nations. You understand that the Hebrews, they had God's perfect law. Though they did not always measure up to it, though they were often far from it and fell from it, the surrounding nations did not have a law so perfect as that of the Hebrews. And then we have these pictures of his majesty and of his kindness. A bruised reed he will not break. I grew up in, uh, for a time, Montana, North Dakota. Reeds all over in lakes. No big deal. You get far out enough, snap. It has a distinct sound. 
But here is the Lord Jesus, the bruised reed. He will not break. He will not snap. And he will not quench a smoking flax. In other words, there's a fire that's almost going out. And rather than just putting it out, what does he do? He blows upon it and brings it back to a flame. What do we read in in, in, in Isaiah 42, simply this, that the Lord Jesus, though strong and mighty, he is merciful to the weak and to those who are fading away. In fact, he can bring them back. In our passage, Mark chapter 3, what do we see? First, the first two verses, verses 7 and 8, we see that the Lord Jesus goes out. He goes away with his disciples so that he might have a time of retirement with them. We trust a time of prayer, possibly some private teaching. However, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus and what he is able to accomplish has become known and so many people are coming to him. People from Jerusalem, people of the Hebrews, but also some other areas are mentioned as well. Idumea, not really the pure-blood Jews, the, the Edomites. And this is a fulfillment in miniature of what would ultimately come after the time of the Lord Jesus' resurrection. That he would bless those who were outside of the ethnic Israelite nation at that time, Judah. And so Jesus has a very remarkable way of reaching all of these people. Rather than being surrounded as you can imagine, people desiring to touch him, people being uh, in desire to, to be touched by him, or to speak to him directly, and he being surrounded. He asks his disciples to help him, and they do. And so he goes out on the water, and he is on a boat. And so you can imagine the people on the shore, coming to the shore, and he, being on a boat, in a sense, able to preach to them, the boat being his pulpit, kind of reminiscent, it seems, of Noah almost. If you read the book of Second Peter, First Peter and Second Peter, tells us that uh, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I don't know about you, I imagine Noah building this boat, building this ark. And over the years in which he's building it, it's, it's getting bigger and bigger. And that ship, that boat, was in a sense a testimony of judgment to come and you need to get in this ark. It seems as though Noah had a, an, an increasing height 
of pulpit calling people to, to tell them it's going to rain, so you must get in the ark. Well, the Lord Jesus does not have such a, a great pulpit as in the great ark in which he would have the animals and all of these resources. The Lord Jesus has as his pulpit a smaller boat, but he is seeking to reach and he is seeking to preach to these people and heal many, many of them. But the demons are present when you have the glory of God present in the Lord Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells. You are going to have demonic activity. And so the demons are there. We read about that. Verses 11 and 12. Unclean spirits. And Jesus tells them that they must be silent. However, it is these demons, these unclean spirits, that know, seemingly know fully who he is. We are not sure that all of these people who came to the Lord Jesus to be healed or to be uh, to, to experience exercising of their demons, we are not sure, and it is not fully clear to us that they all understood the greatness of the one who was in their presence. We trust that some came not for the Lord Jesus himself, but what Jesus could do for them. But the demons know. And there is nothing that he can do for them. For their doom is sure. And a time will come in which they will be cast into the lake of fire. So Jesus silences them. This silencing of the demons has in the last century or two become known as the messianic secret the messianic secret that jesus said Shh, i do not want anyone to know jesus christ the son of god kept his secret for a time but in the meantime, it was his joy to preach and to heal and to exercise demons. The demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. What uh, an incredible phrase that is and title for the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. The book of James tells us that the, the devil's know God, they know who he is, but it does nothing for them. That knowledge cannot save them, and bare knowledge is not enough to save us. If bare knowledge were enough to save us, then the demons would be saved, but they are not saved, and they will not be saved. And Jesus silences them. 
in uh, the year 1901. The man who came up with the, the phrase, as I understand, a man named William Vreda, a German Lutheran pastor, came up with the idea of the messianic secret. Now, understand that Vreda was not a man who we would have ordained in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, not only because he was a Lutheran, but also because he, by all accounts, he seems to have been an unbeliever. He believed that if Jesus had truly been the Messiah and known he was the Messiah, then preaching about his Messiah would have been far more prominent in his ministry. And therefore, after the Gospels were written, Vreda taught, these messianic secret passages were inserted into the text. You think, what? Are you serious? Especially coming out of Germany the last couple of centuries. All kinds of crazy ideas. It's very sad that the Reformation starting in Germany with Martin Luther, faithful believers, the Heidelberg Catechism coming out of Germany. And then for centuries, just such denials of the truth of the Lord. Rather than the idea that Matthew wrote Matthew and Luke wrote Luke and Mark wrote Mark and etc. And we have them in our Bibles as it was written, contrary to our confessional standards, which tell us that the Word of God, having been written, was kept pure in all ages. We have these ideas that the Bible was simply something of a copy and paste job. Copy from here and paste. Copy from there and paste. It's deeply troubling. But we did not learn Christ that way, and we did not learn the Bible that way. Now, one of the, if we could say, godfathers of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Gerhardus Voss, who taught many of the men who would go on to found the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, wrote a book called The Messianic consciousness. And he takes on Mr. Vreda. It is not a book I can recommend, not because it's not good, it's very good, but it's very slow going, and it is very, very dry. You need not read it. Maybe the pastor who would come in, maybe he will have read it, and maybe he'll take up that to read it himself. We don't know. I certainly have spent my time in it but people of the Lord Jesus, you need not become experts in liberalism and refuting all of their crazy ideas. May you just simply take the Word of God as you find it in your lap and as you find it in your hands and say, I believe that Mark wrote this in there 
and that Mark had a very good reason to do so. Why? Because Jesus had a very good reason for keeping his Messiahship a secret. A secret. Now, not a full secret. He was regularly talking about it to his disciples. And it does come through in his ministry. Do not fall for the idea that Jesus did not know that he was Messiah. He knew that he was Messiah all along. In reality, Jesus was not seeking to keep these things under wraps because he was coming to be conscious of his own Messiahship. The fact is, he desired to announce the fullness of his Messiahship on his time and according to his schedule. And he did not desire to have the demons announce things before it was time. Jesus, he knew of his Messiahship and he proclaimed it at the appropriate times. Jesus loved people and he served them and he preached the kingdom and he preached the gospel to them and he healed them. It must have been an amazing thing to see people healed by the Lord Jesus. Let us not think that the Lord Jesus was stingy when it came to his healing ministry. We have a number of, of uh, testimonies of people healed in the Bible. People healed of their blindness, of their deafness, healed of their uh, hands that did not work and that sort of thing. Also, healed of death. He raises people from the dead. Now, he did not do these things simply to, 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 to conduct parlor tricks. He did these things to help people and to fulfill the scriptures. With the primary thing he came to do was preach the kingdom, a new rule, a way of understanding God and his royal kingship. And Jesus was proclaiming his own kingship and his own glory as well. I read to you Philippians chapter 2. Truly an astonishing piece of literature from the hand of the Apostle Paul. And in it, the Apostle Paul, he is able to blend the practical and the doctrinal in ways that few preachers are able to do. The Apostle Paul tells the Philippians, he tells the Philippians that you need to have this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
Now, the mind of the Lord Jesus was such that he was divine. He is eternal. He is the eternally begotten Son of God. There is none higher than the Lord Jesus. But what does he do? He clothes himself in human flesh. And he comes not to be served, but to serve. He comes in the fullness of humanity and the fullness of divinity. And he comes to make himself a servant. Is this not an astonishing an astonishing stoop that he stoops from infinity. If he had stooped so low as to become a glorious, mighty angel, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you see, that would have been an infinite stoop. But he stoops even lower than that. For he stoops to become a man. And if he had stooped to become an earthly king, that would have been an an, an infinite stoop. But he stoops even lower. He stoops to become a servant. And you see this in his ministry when he washes feet. This is the job of a slave, of a servant. And he comes to heal, and he comes to bless and to raise the dead. The Lord Jesus is a prophet, and when he speaks, he speaks the words of the Father. And he does this both in his estate of humiliation, and he does this in his estate of exaltation. That is to say, in Mark chapter 3, this is a passage during his ministry of humiliation, but he continues to speak. He continues to, to speak from heaven through the word and from the preaching of the word. But he is also a king in his humiliation. And he will decide... He will decide who will be healed and who will not. And he will decide who will proclaim that he is son of God and who will not. And he sovereignly puts down the demons while he blesses Gentiles and Jews. And the Lord Jesus exercises his high priesthood. He is not a priest according to the old covenant order that is according to the line of Aaron. He has a different priesthood and his priesthood is one of intercession, praying for the people. And as a priest, He is like no other priest. For earthly priests of the old covenant, they had to offer up 
sacrifices for their own sins and for the sins of the people. But the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus is that he does not offer up sacrifices for his own sins. He offers up sacrifice for the sins of his own people, namely for you and for me. And he is not like the priests of the Old Covenant, those who had to offer up daily offerings. And those offerings according to the feasts and the festivals and the Sabbaths, he offers a sacrifice once and for all. It's wonderful what the Lord Jesus has done as prophet, as priest, and as king. But he surpasses earthly priests in another way. For the earthly priests offered up a sacrifice, but the heavenly priest becomes the sacrifice. The priest becomes the sacrificial lamb. And he did this because he loved his people. He loved those whom the Father had given to him, whom the Father had elected in union with the Lord Jesus himself from eternity past. And in a time before there was time, God set his love upon a particular people so that the prophet, the priest, and the king might come and minister to them in real time and in real space. And so that the word of God might be written down and passed down from age to age. Philippians tells us that he was highly exalted. Why? Because he became obedient and he became humble to the point of death, even shameful death on the cross. But make no mistake, the messianic secret in so far as that language is even useful at all, is no longer applicable. For the secret, if there really was one, is out. Because with the Lord Jesus' resurrection, he tells his disciples, it is time to proclaim my resurrection and so go and tell every creature under heaven that the Lord Jesus has died and he has raised. And so therefore, we here at Grace Reformed and throughout faithful churches, we are a people and we are a faith which keep no secrets. The word of God Notice that we do not keep some parts for the public. And if you advance to another stage, you're given another portion of the word of God. And then if you advance further, 
You're given more of the Word of God. The Word of God is laid bare for all to read, for all to seek to come and contradict and find faults and flaws in it, and they will find none. And the preaching of the gospel goes to all the nations. It is not simply meant for one nation. Can you imagine how John 3.16 would be different? If it had not been, if the gospel had not been intended for all of the nations, God so loved Israel that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That would have been amazing for the Lord God the Father to send his son to die for one nation. Undeserved mercy and grace. But instead of for one nation, the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that is why the gospel is proclaimed liberally. As some preachers said in previous centuries, the gospel is proclaimed promiscuously, without distinction. And so, therefore, may we as the church continue to pray for the gospel to go out liberally and promiscuously for the time of silencing that this is the Son of God has ended. May we proclaim his death and resurrection here on the Lord's day and outward outside of the four walls of this meeting place and may Christ have the glory. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is the one who sets times and seasons and changes times and seasons, and that he put down the wicked demons. But he has ordained that preachers and that people who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ would proclaim his truth. And we ask that we would faithfully proclaim the truth of the Lord Jesus, not only with our lives, but especially with our words. And we ask that when asked to give an account of our belief in the Lord Jesus, we ask that we would be faithful to give a reason for the hope which is in us and help us to do so with gentleness, with honor and respect. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.